Sunday, partly sunny 79, and then a chance of showers as clouds come in on Sunday night. Chance of showers continuing right on into next week. Of course, that's next week, so we'll keep an eye on that. This is Radio Catskill. We are your community radio station. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. And from listener donations at WJFFradio.org. Good evening, and welcome to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This program is produced by Vets for Vets. Our mission is, as always, simple, just to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area veterans, active service members, and their families. Well, tonight, we'll meet Faz Ali, founder of Ali Adaptive Sports and Fitness in Middletown, New York. We'll learn how adaptive sports has changed the lives of so many folks afflicted with physical disabilities since the end of World War II. Their mission? To empower physically disabled persons with opportunities to increase their activity level, improve their self-esteem, form lasting friendships and experiences with the same sports, fitness and recreation as their able-bodied peers. If you take one thing away tonight, it's that disability is not inability. The Navy's Sea, Air, and Land Forces, commonly known as SEALs, are expertly trained to deliver highly specialized, intensely challenging warfare capabilities that are beyond the means of standard military forces. Their missions include direct action warfare, special reconnaissance, counterterrorism, and foreign internal defense. When there's nowhere else to turn, Navy SEALs achieve the impossible through critical thinking, sheer willpower, and the absolute dedication to their training, their mission, and their fellow Special Operations Team members. We'll chat with a former Navy SEAL, Milt Hoos of Dingman's Ferry, to learn about his experience in this elite fighting force. Before we get to that, we have a new feature for you. The VA Today features updates on VA's Hudson Valley Healthcare System from the office of Director Don Shaw. This system includes two main campuses, of course, at Montrose and Castle Point and seven local clinics. Now here's Don Shaw, director of the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System. So thank you uh, for having us on the show today and uh, just wanted to give you some updates of what's happening here at VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System. We are continuing to evolve and move forward with our plans for changing uh, our services and offering more face-to-face appointments following the COVID initial pandemic numbers. Back at the initial height of the pandemic, we had been primarily seeing only veterans in person for urgent and emergent visits, but we were staying in touch and in contact with our veterans and doing lots of other appointments via telephone and through our telehealth options. But now that our community numbers have been low in New York State for some time, we have been expanding our face-to-face appointments. So uh, those veterans that need to be seen in person, uh, particularly for procedural-based types of uh, appointments, such as endoscopies, um, podiatry visits, optometry visits, things like that that don't easily get accomplished through telehealth or phone appointments. We are expanding our services and offering more 
options and availability at all nine sites of care. So that's the two main campuses, Castle Point and Montrose, as well as our seven VA clinics in the surrounding areas, and in particular uh, out in Orange County's Port Jervis and Goshen and up in Sullivan County is our Monticello Clinic. And we are expanding those visits, and we continue to offer lots of telehealth and really encourage our veterans to be in touch with their providers to ensure that we're providing the right uh, care for them that they need to stay healthy because that's what this is all about. We want to keep our veterans healthy and safe, and that's why the next thing I want to let you know about is our flu vaccination program. This year, more than ever, it is critical that we get vaccinated against the flu, and so we are offering veterans a lot of different options and ways that they can get that flu vaccination. Symptoms are very similar to of COVID, as well as many other um, types of viruses that we get this type of year, this time of year. So it's important that we do everything we can to keep ourselves healthy and safe. And one of the best things we can do for that is to get our flu vaccination. So as always, we offer uh, vaccinations at our appointments, um, at our medical appointments. So if a veteran has an appointment already scheduled or will be uh, scheduled in the near future for a primary care or a specialty care visit, um, at that time they will be offered the flu vaccination and can get it then. But also, because we want to ensure that everybody, even those without appointments, are able to get their vaccination, we have instituted a drive-up flu clinic at both main campuses, uh, Castle Point and Montrose, where veterans can literally drive up in their vehicle, answer some questions, basic questions, and get their flu shot. And we are offering that Monday through Friday at both campuses from 8.30 to 11.30 a.m. and 1 to 4 p.m. And we encourage everyone to come, come by and take advantage of that. But again, if that's too difficult to get to, if you live further away, we are offering vaccinations at all nine of our locations, and every location is ready and willing to accommodate our veterans to get their vaccination. Another great thing that is being offered through the VA is if you're not able to come to our clinic locations, there's also an option to get your flu shot at our community care providers, and that includes most major supermarket pharmacies and many urgent care locations throughout the Hudson Valley. So you can choose your preferred community pharmacy or urgent care. Uh, they have to be part of our VA network, so it's important that you confirm that if you're not going to come here for the VA, to the VA for the flu shot. But if you go on our website, uh, www.va.gov forward slash find hyphen locations forward slash, that website will give you a list of all the different uh, community providers that are also offering the flu shot uh, where the VA would cover the cost of that. So you can enter your zip code in and look at um, the retail pharmacies as well as the urgent care sites in your area that offer it. But again, we are very happy to do it at the VA. Uh, we want everyone to come in, get their flu shots, come to the clinic or come to our drive up uh, flu vaccine clinics at the two main campuses or go to the community provider uh, that's part of the VA network because it is so important that we all do get our flu sh shot this year and do our part to keep ourselves as well as one another safe. One last update that I would like to give information on is some very exciting things that are happening at the main campuses in regards to some major renovation projects that are coming to fruition in the next several weeks. Both our Montrose campus and our Castle Point campus, main, uh, one of our main outpatient entrances and urgent care areas are finishing renovations and improvements and will be opening uh, in the next several weeks. Our Montrose urgent care, we actually put a new front entrance onto the front of the outpatient building, and um, veterans can enter the main outpatient building, Building 3, through the entrance, and seek all the different clinical services, as well as administrative services, 
that many of our outpatient veterans um, use. That is opening starting this Friday. That's Friday, September 18th. That will be our first opening. And then we will be phasing in additional services um, over the coming weeks in our uh, new entrance and building. Uh, so that's very exciting. And then at our Castle Point campus, we also have a new entrance for our main urgent care entrance that will be opening a little later this fall, um, probably about uh, late October or early November. And that will be a brand new entrance that will lead directly towards our lab area, as well as into our urgent care area, which had been uh, recently constructed a couple years ago. So that will be all new space that's very uh, veteran-centric, uh, easy to access, and uh, we're there and waiting to serve our veterans. The VA Today will be heard the fourth Wednesday of each month on Let's Talk Vets, right here on Radio Catskill, WJFF. Those living with physical disabilities know that mastering simple tasks of everyday life can be daunting. Now add to that the challenge of mastering a sport which requires extreme agility and split-second execution. Many of us automatically think Special Olympics, right? But as you'll learn, there's a big difference between Special Olympics and adaptive sports. Faz Ali had a rewarding career as a physical therapist and his whole life in front of him when a blood clot resulted in the loss of both legs. Now, while he learned to cope and adapt to his new reality, there was a huge void in his life. He discovered the world of adaptive sports and ultimately competed on the national stage in wheelchair basketball. He decided that the same sense of accomplishment he enjoyed through adaptive sports should be available to folks in Orange County. So, he founded Alley Adaptive Sports and Fitness. Well, welcome to Let's Talk Vets, uh, Faz Ali of Alley Adaptive Sports. Hey, good morning, Doug. Thanks for having me on the show this morning. Well, it's great to speak with you. I think you're doing some amazing things, and we want to tell everybody um, about it and uh, about the good work that you're doing and, and, and helping folks. If you wouldn't mind, start with your mission statement. Well, our mission statement is to provide adaptive sport opportunities and recreational opportunities for those of us who are physically differently abled or disabled throughout the community. Um, so that's what we do. Okay, when we hear the term adaptive sports, many folks think of Special Olympics. However, you wanted to be sure that our listeners understand there are two distinct genres of adaptive sports. What are they? The adaptive sports for those of us who are physically disabled, the Paralympic adaptive sports, and those of us who are cognitively disabled, the Special Olympic adaptive sports. The two genres aren't eligible for each other. So that's a lot of awareness that we bring here in the community, the two different genres of adaptive sports. And we're really the Paralympic adaptive sport or the those of us who are physically disabled are the most underrepresentative um, adaptive sport genre in the community, in the whole Hudson Valley, really. So you yeah you made a good point you said that a, a lot of people get them confused and uh, they think that that folks who are physically disabled can compete in events like the special olympics and they can't No they're not eligible for the Paralympic adaptive sport, of your primary disability has to be physical. So there's a lot of different disabilities. We have spinal cord injuries. We have amputees like myself. We have spina bifida. Um, a lot of neurological injuries and physical injuries that make your disability physical, which makes you eligible to play Paralympic adaptive sports. Okay, another point you stressed is that the images we often see of athletes with uh, prosthetics competing in many events do not necessarily reflect reality. Explain. Yeah, you know, I get that all the time that, wow, you make it look easy. I'm a below knee amputee for 20 years now. So you make it look easy. You make it look easy. Or you see this runner on TV and you think that all amputees could run. Well, the reality of it is that most amputees can't run. 
a very small percentage can tolerate the force of running, what it does to the limb, what it does to your body. I'm a pretty fit amputee um, that has been an amputee for 20 years, and it's extremely challenging to be able to run um, for my limb and my skin to be able to tolerate those sheer frictions and to be able to do it continuously. What they don't show you about those amputees running is what's going on with their limb. You know, how much abrasion, how much, how many band-aids they have on over there, how much up and down they're going through with wearing a prosthetic and attempting to run. The reality is most amputees aren't running and most amputees aren't going to be able to reach that level of running. And if they do reach it, it's for a short period of their, their life. You know, what's more important for us is walking comfortably in a prosthetic leg um, which could be challenging on its own because your limb goes through changes. What could be comfortable two months, the next two months could not be comfortable because of your diet, because of just the, the shape of your limb. So and the comfort of it being inside of a socket of a prosthetic leg. Adaptive sports helped you transition to your new reality as an amputee. Take our listeners through your experience in that transformation. Yeah, yeah, that that that's great, Doug, because adaptive sports really helped provide me with that new identity after becoming an amputee 20 years ago at the age of 24 years old. Um, but, you know, I always want to bring awareness, Doug, to the fact that I was 24 years old. I got my leg amputated due to a random blood clot. Um, I was working at a skilled nursing facility as a physical therapist assistant. I returned to work six months after having my leg amputated and worked in the same job for the next 14 years, full time um, in a physical therapy department. Um, but the first seven years of my amputation, I wasn't exposed to adaptive sports. I knew everybody. I worked and uh, with all kind of physical therapists. I had just graduated from the physical therapy assisting program at Orange County Community College. I had won a rehabilitation team award in 2001 at Helen Hayes Hospital. And not one person mentioned adaptive sports to me or that I could have that identity and I could be around people who have been through traumatic events like myself and I could have this new identity. So bringing it here to the community is a, is a, a, a mission of mine so that kids and adults have that platform. And it's not only for sports. So for us to have that friendship and that camaraderie of those of us who are differently abled. I never knew about these two sides of life, Doug. I had 24 years as an able-bodied man, so I didn't know about the how the disabled population lives. And, you know, even this morning, the fact that I'm crawling on the floor to get to my wheelchair, to then go to the shower, to hop around on one leg, to sit on my shower floor, to to bathe. But more importantly, that that mental anguish and those mental barriers we all have to overcome, but it's compounded more when you have a physical disability. So um, we want to bring a lot of highlight to the platform of adaptive sports, not because we're trying to recruit a bunch of Olympic athletes, because we want to give people the opportunity and the platform to be around those of us who are differently abled. And adaptive sports is simply always going to be that platform that we use to overcome these barriers. When was it that you felt compelled to become more than just a participant in adaptive sports and uh, form Alley Adaptive Sports? Well, you know, we, we mentioned it took seven years to get into adaptive sports, uh, to be exposed to the adaptive sport that I was exposed to was wheelchair basketball. Um, from that one exposure to wheelchair basketball, I went on to win three national championships in the top division of the National Wheelchair Basketball Association, beyond my wildest dreams to even be on a basketball team, let alone being a sponsored player by the New York Rolling Knicks wheelchair basketball team, flying around the country and winning national championships. It was shortly after I started playing wheelchair basketball that this cloak of secrecy of adaptive sports was lifted off of my eyes and I'm like, wow, we have to have this in the community. So this was back in 2012. Um, I won my first national championship in 2014 and I was exposed to the sport in 2008. Um, I became an amputee in the year 2000. 
I knew right away, hey, if I didn't know about this and I knew everyone and at 24 years of age, no one could point me in this direction. There are a lot of kids and adults in our community that don't know they're eligible. See, that was the biggest thing with me, Doug. I knew everyone. I didn't know I was eligible to play wheelchair sports and that I could and that there's all these opportunities for college and to meet other people like me and to stay fit and stay active and to kind of get over some of that mental anguish that we deal with on a daily basis, whether you be an amputee or a spinal cord injury, or if you're just overcoming barriers with your physical disability. I mean, the world is not accessible, right? It's not accessible. So um, it, shortly after playing um, wheelchair basketball for a couple years, then I'm like, wow, I have to build this here in the community. But I had a lot to accomplish yet in my personal life and a lot in my, um, my sport, adaptive sports life to be able to get to that uh, point. So in the larger picture of adaptive sports, are there a lot of veterans involved in that? Um, you know what? That's great that we talk about veterans because all of our listeners, all of your listeners need to know that wheelchair basketball and adaptive sports in the United States was started by the veterans. It was in the 1940s, 1946, with all these vets coming back from World War II and them starting to play it at the veterans hospitals. Right. So it's important to know that. Um, so your question was, do I, you know, am I affiliated with veterans or have I played against veterans? I actually have. And I have a lot of veteran friends on the wheelchair basketball team, the only veteran wheelchair basketball team in the country, which is the San Diego Wolfpack. Um, they have some amazing players, um, all young men um, that have been amputated or have other injuries from Afghanistan or Iraq, a lot of amputees and a lot of elite athletes that have gone on to play professionally over in Spain and other countries, paid positions, and then come back here and play with their club league and the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. When you think about the sheer history of the sport and the magnitude of the sport and to think that they're playing wheelchair basketball and other adaptive sports on dirt courts in third world countries, but yet here in Orange County, Dutchess County and Ulster County, there's not a gym where disabled athletes physically could come and compete at each other. It's kind of hard to believe. I mean, we're in the year 2020. It takes oddly adaptive sports to give that consistent outlet um, and that consistent awareness for this sport. So, you know, we always want to pay homage to how the sport originated. I mean, it started in 1946, and within two years, the National Wheelchair Basketball Association had been formed, and there were veterans around the country playing and making wheelchair basketball the most popular of all the adaptive sports, you know. And then it was inducted um, as a Paralympic sport into the 1960s. So to think on the Olympic platform, um, wheelchair basketball has been played on the in the Olympic platform since the 60s. We speak of wheelchair basketball, Doug, but we, we provide opportunities in a lot of different other sports. Um, we're having a great summer of teaching wheelchair tennis. We've played wheelchair softball. We do track and field. We've gotten kids on our skate ramp that's here in Middletown so that we could do wheelchair skateboarding, if you will. It's called, actually called wheelchair MCX. A lot of opportunities in adaptive sports. All right. One question comes to mind of the uh, the entire adaptive sports community, the people that are getting into adaptive sports, playing wheelchair, basketball, and, and tennis and such. Are you or any of your trainers trained in psychology at all and how to talk to folks? One of the biggest problems with veterans is that people who are not veterans or not acquainted with the military don't always know the right thing to say or how to talk to a veteran. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, of course, um, I have some um, psychology classes that I took to become um, a licensed physical therapist assistant here in uh, New York State. And the, we always want to keep in mind also, uh, you know, I direct uh, this nonprofit, but I've also have 20 years of experience working on a skilled nursing facility rehab, um, dealing with veterans on a daily basis. Yeah, they're older, but I've been rehabbing older veterans and people for my whole professional life. So that experience alone, and I'm an amputee. So, you know, I think um, a lot of it, it's just speaking to everyone as a person, you know, whether you're a veteran or not, we all have these traumatic events, or we have these barriers that we have to overcome in our lives. 
um, I happen to kind of be that ground zero person where I've um, helped people get better and I've had to get myself better, even physically and uh, mentally and emotionally. So speaking to veterans or anyone who is differently abled um, is very second nature for us because of my professional lifestyle that I had and the fact that my professional life, I lived as an amputee. So you uh, brought with you for want of a better term, some street cred with other folks that had the similar problems, huh? Yeah, yeah, you know, that's what, exactly, Doug, and that's what's unique about Ali Adaptive Sports. You know, you're not being exposed to it by, we call you able bodies, right? Well, we're not, you're not being exposed to the sport by an able-bodied person that doesn't know anything about the sport or hasn't overcome any barriers in their lives and aren't physically disabled. Um, we know it's a challenge. It's an everyday challenge for me 20 years later as an accomplished amputee to live this lifestyle. It's a new identity. The hardest thing about this new identity, Doug, is that you never get to say goodbye to the last person. That last identity you had for your whole able body life, it's something that resonates with us for the rest of our lives. We can bring all that experience in. It's because you're right, just what you said. I'm one of you. I'm one of them. It's great to have that person to identify with when you're talking about uh, adaptive sports or someone who's opening the world to you. Yeah, I'm one of them. I may not be a veteran or I may not have the exact same disability. That's what I love about adaptive sports, Doug, because it's the melting pot for all of those physical disabilities. Right. I have friends who are paralyzed. I have friends who got their legs blown off in Afghanistan. I have friends who were born with spina bifida. You know, I have friends who were born um, an amputee or had their legs amputated from a young age. And that plethora of those disabilities really makes up the kids and adults that we service in oddly adaptive sports. The participation in adaptive sports take a person beyond learning to play wheelchair basketball, for example, it touches on other parts of their life to enable them to get their self-esteem back and a new identity because they're doing something, they're accomplishing something, they're achieving something that maybe they never thought they would, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely, um, Doug, absolutely. You know, one of the biggest things for me and the eye-opening thing with me was when you're around the adaptive sports, Right. We're always sitting in our sorrow. Wow, it's so bad. Wow, I have this leg amputated and I can't do this and I can't do that. But then you get exposed to the world of uh, adaptive sports and you're looking at this person who's got both legs amputated and then one of his arms or one of his hands is amputated and he's out there playing wheelchair sports. So you're seeing people who are way more disabled than you able to do more than you. So it's a very eye-opening exposure. You know, it's very eye-opening. It makes things feel a little bit better. You're seeing this other world of people who have it worse than you or less functional strength than you, but yet they could do more athletically than you are, than you can because of their years of playing wheelchair sports or their exposure to the sport. So it's always really neat to watch that transition if you will, you know, and not only that, but, you know, also the transition and the hope that it provides to the athlete and the family, right? This family, when you're living a physically disabled life, whether you, you have a kid with a physical disability or a husband or a spouse, you're living in a very secluded world because the world is able-bodied, right? But now when you're in adaptive sports, those parents, those moms, right, can link up and they could talk about these medical issues that their kids are having or these surgeries that their kids are having. You know, um, this afternoon, I'm training two of our athletes. One is eight years old and has spina bifida, and one is 19 years old that has spina bifida. Um, so um, I overlapped the sessions today so that their mothers could talk to each other. Our eight-year-old just had a major surgery um, that our 19-year-old had 10 years ago. Um, so the fact that these parents can talk about that and can get advice and could have that hope and kind of see, oh, wow, my son or daughter could be this affluent, positive person at 19 and they've had this surgery and they use this technique after this surgery. So um, it's really neat. It's a really amazing platform. If 
far, far outweighs just sports. It's way more than sports. Sports is just the platform. And I knew that, Doug. I knew that, hey, it's more about having this platform where we can overcome these barriers and these obstacles together, right? Hey, if you could shoot a basketball, great. But if you can't, that's okay, you know? Do you have a, a favorite story of um, to somebody that uh, simply wanted to participate in a sport but found in the pursuance of that goal it actually helped them cope with uh, other aspects of their lives or, as you just said, help somebody else? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I do have a, um, a story. We're going to talk about one of our athletes. His name is uh, Josh. He just graduated from Minnesink High School, and um, he's a senior, and he has spina bifida. He is only physically disabled, um, and he grew up in this community, and he never sat in a sports wheelchair his entire life until he met us as a teenager. He grew up with the physical education class, and there was no physical education teachers that were equipped to teach him about the opportunities or the skills, right? There was no equipment where he could participate in sports in a sports wheelchair. There's a big difference between a sports wheelchair and an everyday chair. But you know what? Josh has went on to um, just become a strong motivator. I mean, just his social media presence alone, sometimes I'm kind of in awe that he has just as many followers as I have. And people are looking at him as an inspiration in the fact that he's positive and he's playing sports and he loves photography. He actually just got a drone and is big, big into his drone photography. And he's really inspiring a lot of other able-bodied people and disabled people um, throughout his life. You know, that goes with all of our athletes. You know, you don't realize this platform of inspiring yourselves, your family, and others just by participating in sports and remaining positive. You provide that hope, that inspiration to people throughout your daily life. Well, you are another example, as are those who participate in adaptive sports, of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And we're very happy and, and proud that you're in this area. If I'm an area vet or a caregiver for a, a vet with some issues and you want to get some more information or see what it's all about, how do they go about that? Who do they contact? All right. You would contact me. Um, I have a really easy email address. It's aliadaptivesports at gmail.com. And Ali is like Muhammad Ali. So aliadaptivesports at gmail.com. Um, and we also have a, um, um, a good social media presence. You could search us on Facebook at Ali Adaptive Sports and Fitness. You could search us on Instagram at Ali Adaptive Sports underscore. And we also have a website, which is www.aliadaptive.com. That's www.aliadaptive.com. How about a phone number? Phone number is 845-800-6072. And that's my direct line. And I can answer any questions about eligibility. Um, we do uh, inclusion walks where we have members of the community physically disabled, mentally disabled, all coming together to access and accessible trails throughout Orange County for hiking and walking and rolling and skating or however you get around. We want you to come out and be part of this platform. Is there any cost to participants? Um, no, there is no cost as of the moment. We do um, ask that our participants take part in our uh, fundraising campaigns so that we could um, pay for the services that are rendered. So we have several fundraising campaigns that are all going on, and we have a really great team atmosphere. We just ask that you participate in that. Okay, where are your facilities located? We are in Middletown, New York. Um, we've partnered with the Middletown Parks and Recreation Department, so we have access to their 13 parks throughout Middletown um, that we're talking about tennis courts and accessible hiking paths, and their main facility is on County 78, which is new campus for Middletown Parks and Recreation in Middletown, New York. Okay, what are your major goals for the future? 
always to provide awareness and our number one goal is to um, recruit new athletes. You know, whether it's that one veteran who is coming back and he's disabled or she's disabled and she's never doesn't know that they're eligible. And so recruitment of new athletes and new families to help change their lives and inspire them to overcome the barriers in their life, it's always going to be my main priority. And then moving forward, we want to be able to increase the services that we're rendering. You know, we have a lot of athletes that would benefit from coming three to four times a week. And because of budget, they can only come once or twice a week. Um, we want to do more social and recreational opportunities where we're hiking for a day or, you know, um, we're all at a campsite for the same day. And we have this campsite and we're fishing and doing fitness activities, but giving them an opportunity to also sit around a campfire. See how it feels to listen to music around a campfire and, and, and pitch a tent and be into the nature. So we have a lot of other um, goals for the social and recreational um, aspect of our nonprofit. Well, Faz, fascinating subject. Hope our listeners have gained something from this. Uh, one last question, and then I'll ask for your closing thoughts. When you were a physical therapist, have any of your old patients or clients showed up in adaptive sports? Um, you know what? No, unfortunately, I haven't had any of my older patients show up for adaptive sports only because of um, I'm working in a skilled nursing facility with the geriatric population. Um, so no, most of those patients are beyond that part. Um, they've showed up for events and socially recreationally, um, but not to participate as an athlete as of yet, um, but only because of the population that I'm working with. Okay, Faz Ali, Ali Adaptive Sports, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, you know, I'd like to thank the Hudson Valley um, Veteran Task Force, and I'd like to thank you, Doug, for bringing awareness to our mission. And anybody who's listening to this, if you, you know that one athlete or that one person that would like to be a part of our platform, please contact us. Um, from having one conversation with us or seeing our, our web presence, you're going to know this is going to be the, the best phone call that you ever made. So uh, I'd like to thank everyone. Please bring our mission with you. If you know of anybody who's physically disabled in our community, and if you have any questions, contact me. Thanks for the awareness. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to participate. And in the future, if you have something that you'd like everybody to know about, please reach out to us and uh, we'll do our best to get it on uh, WJFF. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, and you're listening to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. I grew up in Sussex County, New Jersey. One of my friends in high school was a fellow by the name of Milt Hoos. Vietnam was in full swing. And with the draft hot on my heels, I joined the United States Air Force in 1968. Milt, on the other hand, decided he'd rather see the world. So he joined the Navy and became a SEAL. The Navy's Sea, Air, and Land Forces, commonly known as SEALs, are expertly trained to deliver highly specialized intensely challenging warfare capabilities that are beyond the means of standard military forces. Their missions include direct action warfare, special reconnaissance, counterterrorism, and foreign internal defense. When there's nowhere else to turn, Navy SEALs achieve the impossible through critical thinking, sheer willpower, and absolute dedication to their training, their missions, and their fellow special operations team members like to welcome you to Let's Talk Fetch. How are we doing, Doug? I'm fine. Can you tell us your name and, and what your job was, where you served, when you served? Uh, Milt Hoos III. I served in the Navy from uh, 1969 to 1973. After I got out of boot camp in Great Lakes, I was on a destroyer for 
six months out of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, where I took the training test for UDT when I was in Great Lakes. It was a swim test and a, and a PT test. And what, I, what's UDT? Uh, underwater demolition team, which is now called SEALs. Well, I had a roommate. We were in A school, and he said to me, he said, can you swim? I said, yeah, I can swim really good. So he said, well, let's, uh, I want to go take this test, but I want to go by myself. So we went down to the, the pool there at the Great Lakes, and, and uh, they had a UDT instructors there, and they were, they were screening people for entrance into UDT. And I was about 230 pounds, so I wasn't, well, I wasn't looking to be a physical guy. But we went through this, I went through the training class or the little training thing they had there, and I didn't think any more about it. <clears throat> and I'm on this destroyer over and coming back from the Mediterranean, and my division officer comes to me and he says, uh, hey, You got orders for UDT. And I said, Well, what's that? He said, Well, that's diving. You signed up for this thing. You ought to know what it is. I said, Well, yeah, I did it boot camp. You know, I don't really remember about it. He said, well, you don't want these records. You don't want these orders, do you? I said, well, it'll get me off the ship on it. And he said, well, yeah. I said, yeah, well, I don't take them. <laughs> so I... Uh, Wasn't there an old adage about never volunteering for anything? Yeah, well, I, I paid for that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Went down to Little Creek, Virginia, and uh, started Class 50 East. Of course, back then it was called 7003 because it was the last class in 1970. And when I showed up there, I was like 235 pounds, and six weeks later, I weighed 195 pounds. It's amazing how that works. So uh, they called me in just before Hell Week started, and they said, uh, you're not going through Hell Week, because you're either going to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else. So they, they rolled me back into the next class, which was 70, because this was a end of the summer class, hot class, and that's what took all the weight off me, because we were always running, and it was just ungodly hot. But anyhow... They rolled me back to class 7101, which is 51 East. That started, I think it was the first or second week in January. <clears throat> and we went to, and the class went till April. So I went through that class. And uh, then after that, I went to jump school in Fort Benning and underwater summer school in Key West, Florida. Of course, they're both gone now. All the training is done on the West Coast now. And they have their own... They have their own training area for for uh, underwater diving, and, and also they have their own parachute school. Of course, we only did static line, but now they're free fall. So how, how many jumps did you do? 34 that I know of that are on paper, but I did more you than You don't that. remember the rest of them? Well, I, I don't. I remember them, but, you know, I wasn't a very good guy with the paperwork. I just made the quality. Just. The jumps that I know I made are the ones I had to qualify every month for to get my demolition pay. Yeah. That was an extra 55, or not my demolition pay, my jump pay, because we got two. We had three different, we could have got three different ones, but they only allow you to take two. So, so you we, said a lot of your jumps were into water. Well, half of them, yeah, because they were training jumps. So that's with gear, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you had your swim gear, and I used to. they used to make me jump the boat. They don't do that anymore. <clears throat> what they would do is they take an inflatable boat and they'd roll it up and inside of it would be a CO2 cylinder. And they'd take your reserve off and throw it out away and then they'd hook this boat to the front of you. And you'd tailgate a CH-46 helicopter from about 1,500 feet. And you'd kind of, they'd, they'd help you get to the boat to the back of the ramp. And they'd say, go, and you take a jump up and step and out you'd go and of course you're a static line so it would open automatically and as soon as you got a full canopy under you had two release pins where your reserve was and the boat would un unroll on a, about a 20-foot cord and it'd go down and when it halfway down it would stop and it would jerk you but that would also they had another wire on there that was shorter than the wire that was attached to your to the boat and that would start the inflation of the boat so by the time you got to the ground, if you were good, you could land in the boat. Of course, I wasn't good enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but how much how much gear weight wise did you did you jump in the water with? Well, it depend. If we were if we were going to just swim to the shore, you know, we had a probably a backpack, and if you had a gun, you had that strapped on the side of you. And of course, you had fins and a mask, and they were tied to you too. They had what they call lanyards. 
so you wouldn't lo wouldn't lose them in a jump. Or if you were going to do an underwater deal, you might jump with tanks. A little different today, though, right? Now, if they're jumping, they don't do uh, static line. They're all either high altitude, high opening, or high altitude, low opening. There's two different classic. So you want to get down as quick as you can before somebody takes well, a shot at you. Huh? Well, it depends. If if you, most of the jumps are done at night too, they're night jumps and like I say, water jumps. And uh, it depends on where you are. Like in the mid in the mid east, they're jumping high so that they can't hear the plane, and they're flying downwind maybe five or ten miles before they get to their, where they want to land. And they're not jumping from 1,500 feet. They're jumping from 15,000 feet probably or more than that where, because they're jumping with air tanks. Uh, how fast How fast do you hit the water when you jump in the water? Well, the parachute, you know. That's probably, I don't know, 10, 15 miles an hour. We used to jump without parachutes, too, but that was only 30 feet, 30 miles an hour. That was the highest you could do that. In other words, you just jump out of the back of the helicopter. Did you ever get deployed? Just on uh, Caribbean cruises, no combat. Nowhere where I got shot at. I was lucky. That's a good thing. Yeah. Well, there's two ways to look at it, you know. Uh, you know, you always want you to do all this training, and you want to find out whether you're good enough to do it, but then, you know, you never get a chance to. So, yeah, what are you going to do? Did you enlist, or were you drafted? No, I was. I got drafted, and instead of, instead of uh, going down for my physical and getting drafted, I went up to Port Jervis, New York, and... Join the Navy. <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you grow up, Milt? Uh, Branchville, New Jersey. Where's that? Uh, Sussex County, about uh, I don't know, 20 miles south of Port Jervis. Still there? No, I live in Pennsylvania now. No, is Branchville still there? Oh, yeah. Nobody I know. There. Well, there's two people there that I know when I, was, when I grew up there that are still there. Everybody else is gone. Either gone, gone, or moved away. So what would be your message to other veterans that are listening to this program. A lot of guys are, you know, they don't want to reach out for the help that's there. And uh, a lot of guys are reluctant to use the system. And what would you say to them? Well, I, as far as the VA goes, I love it. I mean, my father got me into it in, I don't know, probably in the 80s. Because he does before everything in the, in the Far East started up. And he said to me, they're looking for people, because he was in World War II, and him and his buddy used to go up to Port Jervis to the VA, and he said to me, they're looking for people up there, you know, there's there's nobody, they don't have anybody. He said, you were go up there, and well, you may not need it, but you can use it if you got it. So I went up and signed up, and, and I'm glad I did, because I use the VA for just about everything now. I mean, I've got uh, Social Security, but I've also got the VA, so. we got a great new clinic now, too. They moved the... VA clinic down from the top of the Pike Street down to the bottom. Yeah, I haven't been there yet. I got to go next month. I got to go up there and check it out. All the same people are there, I guess, right? Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. I was there this morning for an eye test, actually. Oh, <laughs> okay, Milt, thanks uh, again for talking to us, and uh, we'll see you later. Sounds good, Doug. Take care. So before we wrap this edition of Let's Talk Vets up and put it in the vault, here's an update for you on veteran suicide from the VA. Congressional lawmakers reached a deal this week to send a sweeping veteran suicide prevention legislation to the White House later this month, but the plan for now will abandon any serious discussion about gun safety for at-risk veterans. The connection between veteran suicide and firearm safety was promoted by House lawmakers throughout the summer and included in the White House's own new suicide prevention roadmap unveiled in June. About 20 veterans and current service members die from suicide each day, a figure that has remained stubbornly consistent for the last decade despite federal efforts to address the problem.
Firearms are involved in nearly 70% of veteran suicide deaths, according to VA statistics. Mental health experts have argued that promoting safe storage of firearms and encouraging family members to limit at-risk veterans' access to weapons could save lives and produce quicker results on suicide prevention than any other long-term studies or staff hiring plans. But the issue has long been a political point of controversy on Capitol Hill, even in the context of suicidal veterans. Several Republicans in the House have spoken out against the idea in recent months, arguing that any limits on gun ownership violates veterans' constitutional rights. Democratic leaders in the House Veterans Affairs Committee had planned to include a lethal means provision, along with dozens of other amendments, as part of the Commander John Scott Hannon Veterans Mental Health Care Improvement Act passed out of the Senate in August. The measure had received strong support from veterans groups who argued that immediate action is needed on the issue of suicide prevention. It would allow Veterans Affairs officials to award grants to community groups that are offering emergency intervention and suicide prevention initiatives, a major goal of President Trump's administration, as well as add more mental health staff to the department and improve data collection on veterans' health. House Veterans Affairs Committee Chairman Mark Ticano, Democrat of California, initially resisted calls to fast-track the measure through the chamber and send it to the president without edits. But he relented this week, announcing that plans to package some of the amendments into a secondary suicide prevention package that will hopefully pass the Senate in coming weeks. I can promise you this isn't going to be the last conversation or the only legislation that we consider regarding veteran suicide prevention, he said at a markup hearing on Thursday. Included in the secondary package, dubbed Compact Act, is Takano's own bill to make VA mental health care services available to all veterans, regardless of their discharge status. Advocates have argued that many veterans with less than honorable discharges, sometimes caused by undiagnosed brain injuries and post-traumatic stress, are often among the veterans most vulnerable to suicidal thoughts, and better access to care could save them. The Compact Act also includes several provisions related to training and assistance for veteran family members designed to create stronger support networks for at-risk veterans, a new mandate that VA officials reach out to veterans every few years to ensure that they are aware of benefits and health care options, and new training for VA police. Takano said that he hopes to send both the Compact Act and the Hannon Act to the House floor for passage next week. If the full House approves the bill, the Hannon Act would head to the White House to become law, while the Compact Act would need to be approved by the Senate before being sent to the President. Our sincere thanks to Don Shaw, director of the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System, Faz Ali of Ali Adaptive Sports and Fitness, and Mr. Milhous. And to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. If you have a story to tell, we'd love to hear from you. Love to have you join us. Send us an email or leave us a voicemail, and I will be in touch to set up a phone interview. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may get them on the air, both in our normal public service announcement segments and this program. You can email me at vets at wjffradio.org. You can leave us a voicemail at 845-431-6500. Until our next formation, this is Staff Sergeant Sandberg. Thanks for listening, of course. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. So we'll leave you tonight with this song by Toby Keith. It says everything there is to say about our military and the American soldier. Good night. I'm just trying to be a father, raise a daughter and a son. 
Be a lover to their mother, everything to everyone. Up and at 'em, bright and early. I'm all business in my suit. Yeah, I'm dressed up for success, from my head down to my boots. I don't do it for the money. There's bills that I can't pay. I don't do it for the glory. I just do it anyway. Providing for our futures, my responsibility. Yeah, I'm real good under pressure, being all that I can be. And I can't call in sick on Mondays when the weekend's been too strong. I just work straight through the holidays, sometimes all night long. You can bet that I stand ready when the wolf growls at the door. Hey, I'm solid. Hey, I'm steady. Hey, I'm true down to the core. And I will always do my duty, hey, no matter what the price. I've counted up the cost. I know the sacrifice. Oh, and I don't wanna die for you, but if dying's asked of me, I'll bear that cross with honor. 'Cause freedom don't come free. I'm an American soldier, an American. Beside my brothers and my sisters, I will proudly take a stand. When liberty's in jeopardy, I will always do what's right. I'm out here on the front lines, sleeping peace tonight. American soldier. Your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. This is Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. RiverReporter.com. And from listener donations at WJFFRadio.org. Everyone in the country has just one chance to be counted every 10 years. And everyone counts, regardless of age, race, income, or immigration status. 
If you aren't counted, your community risks losing millions of dollars for schools, roads, bridges, Medicare, senior housing, and more. You can fill out the 2020 Census online at 2020census.gov, by phone at 844-330-2020, or by mail. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Celebrating 30 years of public radio for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. Keeping up with the news in the months before an election can seem like a daunting task. And now add the challenge of looking at it through many different lenses. The pandemic, a struggling economy, civil unrest, and more. NPR gives you a clearer perspective on the issues that matter. Reliable information so you can vote with confidence. 2020 election, it's time to listen to the issues and to each other. 